battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Welcome back. You are still listening to The Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. We are now in overtime. We're going to be getting to your calls, uh, talking to Connor Lewis about Pennsylvania, all sorts of stuff. And, um, and, and so, you know, Adam, I don't know if, if you wanted to, is there anything you wanted to say about the chat with Randy Kelly before we, before, before we hear listeners thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't say I got answers to all my questions. Uh, but as I said in the chat, sometimes that is an answer by itself. Yeah. Um, I hope that, uh, you know, I hope that folks walked away knowing a little bit more about the state of things. Mm-hmm. Now, whether they got that from Dr. Kelly's answers or, or perhaps from, from what he didn't say, um, there was some vigorous discussion in the chat among people who are plugged into that circle. You know, neither of us are on the SDEC. There are people in our chat who are mm-hmm. uh, and who, you know, were not impressed. Um, I, I, I think that one of the things that uh, that that really struck me, and it was getting towards the end of the interview, so I didn't have time to dig into it. Was when I asked about like what he's done to support folks like the miners, Starbucks workers, Amazon workers, paper mill workers, and he was like, "Well, they haven't contacted me," and it's like, and he's like, and saying that with no hint of no hint of um, of embarrassment that that huge national and international labor news is going on. And he doesn't have contact with the people in his state about that. Right. You know, Why like, is it that we've got someone like Kim Kelly who lives, what, 10 hours away, mm-hmm. knows more about this right. than the state? Yeah. Sure. And, and, Why and is then, it that you and I have done more right. and people, strike than they have? Yeah. And, and it's like, um, you know, it, it was it was as if, and, you know, I mean, I, I don't, you know, as if. Uh, the workers should be coming to him for support as opposed to the other way around as opposed, you know, because it's like, they're not trying to win an election, right? They're trying to, they're trying to, to beat the boss. Uh, he's the one that's, that's supposed to be trying to, you know, build support. Build well, a working he said class it himself. Majority. I mean, when you asked about the, the lack of voter turnout, because let's be clear, over 60% of Alabamians did not participate in Tuesday's sham. Um, he, he said it himself. Well, he said, I don't know why they're not voting, but then he said maybe they're not getting a return for their vote. Right. So uh, one thing I want to I'll save some of the rest of my commentary. I'd like to get the callers on the line. Uh, Folks have heard from me already. And uh, yeah, I have more thoughts and I'm sure I'll have more thoughts after we get done with. um, Yeah. Today. But yeah, well, let's go to let's go to the first caller. All right. Let me see if I can get Haley on the line for us. 
All right. Um, caller, I believe you are on the air. Could you tell us your name and where you're calling from? Oh, hey, cut the WBNN. Yeah. Um, yeah, caller, I think you are on the air. Uh, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, my name is Haley. Uh, I was uh, a member of the SUC caucus as of August. Um, so I appreciate y'all taking the time and appreciate Chair Kelly taking the time. It's good to hear from our chair. <laughs> I will say it's been very frustrating. Um, we joined, a, a bunch of us joined in August. Uh, we were called children. They tried to keep us out. Uh, and it's been incredibly frustrating as a new member of the SDC. Uh, in particular, like listening to this interview, knowing that like folks in our caucus have spent a tremendous amount of time trying to get email lists together. Like so mm. much time has been spent trying to get folks this email list um, and nobody is receptive to it, right? And, and so the chair is like, well, you can call me and my secretary will pass it along. And it's like, that's not super comforting when we're trying over and over again uh, mm. to figure out how we can get in touch with the chair. And so it makes it hard to like accept Chair Kelly saying that he wants to like talk to us, support the youth, get our feedback, recruit candidates. It's like there's a whole group of youth I spent a tremendous amount of time just at that one meeting, 12 hours we spent at that one meeting <laughs> to get elected mm -hmm. to the SDEC. And we want to be there for the party. We want to figure out how we can build a party and move the state forward. Um, and we're not getting that communication. Um, and particularly it's frustrating, like hearing the chair talk about Tabitha instead of focusing on the elections, right? Y'all explicitly said at the beginning, we're not going to focus on that. And he brings it up three times mm -hmm. in particular. <laughs> Like, right, right. to talk about a rumor that he heard her screaming, right? And, you know, explicitly saying, that's not something that I saw, but people tell me she started screaming. And I can't, I can't accept that, you know, that's about saving the image of the party when we're spreading rumors about people that are trying to do the work. Mm -hmm. And Tabitha has been there trying to support us where the chair hasn't. So I would love, I would absolutely love to be in contact with the chair. I think it would be wonderful if we had that level of communication and support. But that's not what I have experienced as someone who's new to the state and new to the party and trying to figure out where I belong. Um, and I will say that one thing that I would like for the chair to do um, in order to sort of fix that division, that lack of communication, is particularly focus on youth caucus, LGBTQ issues, and the county parties, and labor as well, obviously. Uh, Y'all have already addressed that. But those are three areas in which the chair has a tremendous amount of power to build bridges the way that he talked about in the interview, right? Mm -hmm. He can spend time with youth caucus. We have tried to get him in communication with us. He could spend time making sure that queer folks don't think that they're trying to remove the queer caucus if, they, in fact, they don't want to remove the queer caucus, which seems incredibly unclear based on his uh, refusal to sort of take a stance on whether or not that would be correct. And even more so, not even just refusal, but suggesting that the reason we have those caucuses in the first place is to dilute the black vote, which is incredibly frustrating in particular because, like, the youth caucus has to have a certain amount of black representation. Mm -hmm. And so he's kind of hand-waving over the actual mechanics of how this works to make this claim about a power struggle between black folks and white folks. And that's not to say that that hasn't happened in the Alabama Democratic Party before, not to say it's not worth talking about, but it doesn't seem like it's the issue in this case. And it's sort of a way of avoiding that we're not supporting youth caucus, we're not supporting queer folks in the party. And in particular, the county parties are having to do a tremendous amount of organizing on their own with no support from the state party. And those are the folks that show up to labor events, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the folks that I have seen out on the picket line, out at support events for Starbucks, out at rallies for the RWDSU organizers in the Bessemer facility. Um, so anyways, I'll end my rant, but those are some of, the, some of the things that I would like to see from the party chair. Um, and I think that we have a tremendous opportunity right at this particular moment to build a progressive Alabama. And so I'm really, really hopeful now that this election is over and we've lost this moment, that the next moment uh, we can do better. 
Yeah, I, I think that... I really appreciate you calling in, Haley, and sharing your perspective. Um, and I can't imagine how frustrating uh, that conversation must have been from, from your side of things. Yeah, well, and, and you know, the that's just bizarre that the the email list has been such a such a point of contention you know you would think that that would be the the first and most easiest thing to 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 make happen right one would hope um and i you know i totally take the chair's point that yes it's been a messy transition and there are a lot of things that he is not remotely responsible for in particular like he's not responsible for the ways that you know we failed to recruit for this election cycle right, but he right, is right. responsible for the way the, tra the transition has been happening and i think that that has been happening with a complete lack of communication across the board except for the folks that are in the chair's caucus which is great but also the rest of the SDC should be getting that communication because like I said, we want to be there for the party. We want to figure mm -hmm. out how uh, we build something uh, that works for working people in Alabama. And that's not what the democratic party is doing right now. Right? Like we mm -hmm. don't have a structure. That's a real opposition party. We don't have a chance in a lot of these elections. And in part because that's because there's no support flowing from the state party. Um, and so figuring out how we fix that, I think is going to take a lot more communication, particularly with the young people and the new members who have ideas, right, who would love to help mm -hmm. with the social media accounts, who would love to help figure out the website issues. We have experience with that. We want to help. And we're just not being even like so much as emailed, no matter how hard we try. Um, how do you, uh, Yeah, I, uh, and I certainly do, too. I mean, there's no no doubt he's busy. So how do you feel about your... Um, how do you feel about your commitment to the party so far? Do you think that, and, and what would your message, what would your message be to, to other people that, that have listened and, and that are, uh, you know, maybe not involved in the party that are, that, that want to get involved in, or, or that want to get involved in something, uh, you know, do you feel like it's been, a, been a good use of your time? Do you feel like it has the potential to be a good use of your time or, you know, like just what are your thoughts in general about being a, you know, you're, you're like a, uh, you know, officially to a certain extent, uh, like a capital D Democratic Party activist, right? How do you, you know, how do you feel about your inve the, your your investment, both in, in time and resources and all that? Tremendously conflicted, I will say, because mm -hmm. I think that it's important to have an opposition party. I think that we are dealing with fascism and we need to make an attempt to organize in opposition to it. And over and over again, I don't see a positive message coming out of the Democratic Party. Um, and so, you know, any time that I have been in sort of party meetings, I hear a lot of, we need to unite, we need to unite, we need to unite, followed by a lot of bickering. Mm -hmm. um, and not a lot of what we're uniting around, which I think is part of the reason why there's so much bickering. But mm -hmm. we don't have clear values in this party, as, as near as I can tell. Which again, is part of the reason why we have Yolanda Flowers as our gubernatorial candidate, right? We're putting up candidates that don't have values that one would think of as like in line with traditional Democratic Party values. We're getting a gubernatorial candidate that is anti-choice because mm -hmm. we don't have values that we're trying to unite around. And so I, I will say it's been frustrating. I can't necessarily encourage a whole bunch of people to try and get involved unless they're really, really ready for a challenge. Yeah. Um, but I knew that coming in, right? Like I knew that it wasn't going to be easy, that there's a long history of division here. And it's going to take a long time to figure out how we build it back. Um, and I, I would really love to see the chair take the lead on that, right? I think that mm -hmm. there's a lot that we can do, but it has to start at the very minimum with you know communication and not sort of smearing each other in public in lieu of communicating with each other. Yeah, the, I mean Yolanda Flowers anti-choice, and and also I mean I I think that like religiously bigoted is is like an accurate 
um, statement about her views of non-religious people. You know, um, you know, I think she said something about like you know atheists are like lizard people or something. I mean, and, that was not a real campaign. That was not a serious <laughs> candidate or a serious campaign. Anyone who thinks otherwise is living in a different world. Uh, but something you said, Haley, that resonated with you. No, a lot of folks, sorry, quickly. I know a lot of folks that wrote in, myself included, wrote in Jared Budlock mm-hmm. because we were yeah, not yeah. Yeah, we able did to exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or I did too. I don't know. Sorry, continue. Out. Yeah, I, I was just going to say something you said that really brought up something I, I had jotted down earlier, which is that, you know, there's been this infighting in the Democratic Party for all these years, dating back even before, uh, you know, Nancy Worley and Chris England. Um but whether it's, you know, Doug Jones and his rich white friends or Joe Reed and Randy Kelly and the old black church crowd, which tends which this this be real. Those are the two primary factions here. Um, neither faction seems at all interested in engaging with the left. Neither faction seems at all interested in engaging with people under the age of like 50. Um, neither faction seems at all interested in engaging with labor. Clearly. So, you know, that's that's what's really been, you know, I've been trying to rack my brain over this all week is. Is there any point, you know, in trying to save the Democratic Party from itself? Is that even the best time, resource, money, uh, energy use for us as the limited progressive people in the state of Alabama. There's not a ton of people in the state of Alabama who right now today are committed to progressive social change and are willing to do something about that. Uh, And so that's what I'm really pondering, and I I know a lot of other people are as well, is, okay, so what what should we do next? Um, And where should we be putting our time and energy and resources? And is it continuing this, um, you know, intra-party power struggle that has now spanned for years and i applaud you for doing what you're doing and i don't mean to be dismissive of what you're doing because i think it takes all people working in all spaces where it works best for them right that's not Mm -hmm. my scene but if you can operate in that scene i need you there just like you need me in my scene um but yeah you know that's just something that's that's really been been on my mind and i you know that your comments brought it up for me no, it's an incredibly fair question. And I will say I didn't get involved in the Democratic Party until after I was already very involved in you know, the labor fight in the state mm-hmm. and involved in Birmingham DSA, which I would 100 percent encourage folks who uh, associate themselves with the left to think about joining DSA. I think that uh, we are building a structure within Birmingham DSA that doesn't lend itself to just constant infighting and we're able to get shit done. Right. But I wanted to join the Democratic Party because I think that it has a different role to play than DSA. I think that mm-hmm. it can be an opposition party in a way that DSA can't right now. Um, and I think that there's opportunities for collaboration. Now, I don't know if the party sees it that way. I have no idea if that's right, something right. that they would be uh, open to. I've certainly gotten some hostility from folks who are members of the party. Um, I've never uh, heard anything from the chair about it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I take so- your point. Yeah, I think yeah. it's hard to uh, try and argue for folks to, to join the Democratic Party at this point. And I, I think you're right that we do have these two factions. Um, and if 
if we could bring some of these, you know, young Democrats up into leadership, I think it would be tremendously better. Uh, the Youth Caucus has been a very different experience than sort of the other Democratic Party meetings that I've been in. Um, so I'd really appreciate if we had some support um, and weren't like constantly threatened with being <laughs> removed from the SDEC, because I think that we have a lot to bring um, and we can you know, figure out how to move beyond these two factions and actually create a Democratic Party that functions and puts up candidates that can win, mm-hmm. which I will say, uh, you know, I will try not to harp on Tabitha too much, but that was what inspired me about Tabitha is that she will talk about that we need to win. Like we can't mm-hmm. just, you know, call ourselves Democrats and go do things because we're doing things. Like we need to make a plan to win because again, we are fighting against fascism. We are fighting for people's rights, for people's livelihoods. And if we don't do that in an organized fashion, the consequences are dire. Um, and so that was something I appreciated and something I'd like to hear more from the chair is like, what is our plan to win? Not mm-hmm. just, you know, we're going to, we're going to find candidates. We're going to support youth in theory. Like what is the plan? What's the strategy? What are the tactics we're going to use? Um, and I just haven't heard that. Right. right. And what are and, the goals, concrete yeah. goals? Are you going to tell me four years from now that a hundred percent of statewide offices will be filled, that a hundred percent of legislative offices will be filled? Mm. Is, is that a concrete goal? Should we, should we aim for half? Is that a more realistic goal? I mean, those are the things that, that we're not happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, right. At, at this point, at this point, if the state Democratic Party could put nominations on the ballot for half, half of the political office offices that were up for election on Tuesday, and if they could send one email a week and have <laughs> an operating website, that would be a level of competence we have not seen out of the party in my entire adult lifetime, and certainly in Jason's. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's, that's unacceptable. That's ridiculous. And it's sad that, you know, people like us having this conversation, the people in our YouTube chat have better ideas than these people have been doing this shit for all these years. Yeah. yeah. So... Haley, uh, you know, I I know that there's a there's a there's a small group of y'all in the youth caucus that are you know that are doing doing some work inside the party, um, and and I think you know outside of the youth caucus, uh, it, you know, in the queer caucus and and in some of these other caucuses, and and I, I I'm sure that y'all have some contacts in the ADC, and and so this you know this this loose affiliation of of you know people on the left, people working toward you know people that are kind of in, in, in our circle, so to speak, fellow travelers, how can people that, that do want to get involved in the Democratic Party get connected with y'all? I would welcome folks to get in touch with me directly and I can connect people as best as possible. I also think you may have Robert on the line and he can probably give you better answers because he's been involved for longer than I have. Um, but uh, I am on social media way too often so folks can reach me on twitter instagram um, and i'm happy to put my email in the chat as well so i will leave that in the youtube chat um i we don't have as much of a formal communication structure as i was like as i would like and i'd like to build that i said we've got more formal structures within dsa um which is part of how we were able to organize to Mm -hmm. you know to try and do some work within the democratic party um but yeah, I think it's it's an ongoing struggle to figure out how we communicate. Um, and I, my understanding is that I don't I don't want to speak for people, but my understanding is that even the young black folks have not gotten communication. So it's not that mm. all of the ADC is receiving communication because all of the black members of the party are not being communicated with. Mm. Um, and uh, anyways, we would we would like all of us would like to be. Um, and I I don't know how we make that happen, but like I said, I would love to connect with more folks who who feel the same way and are like minded. Well, I was uh, joking with Jacob off the air that. 
maybe Dr. Kelly needs to have an interview like he did with us, but with his own caucus. Um, with his own youth caucus and his own committee. And, There's a reason uh, so many of us tuned in this morning. It's because mm-hmm. we've been waiting. Right, right, <laughs> we've been right. waiting to hear from our chair for sure. Appreciate the call. Well, and we actually have two more callers on okay. the line. So, Let's see if we uh, can get to those. Yeah. Thanks, Haley. So, Haley. like Paul Feinbaum today. All right. Let's. Are they different area codes? Yes. Um, it looks like I've got uh, 334 area code has been on the line the longest, and then coming up is a 256. Yeah, so let's bring on the 334 area code. Um, and uh, so 334 area code, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hello, this is Tabitha Eisner, vice of the Alabama Democratic Party. <laughs> Hi, Tabitha. How it's good to hear from you. So what are your Hi. Good what, to hear what, from y'all. Yeah. So what are what are your thoughts about uh about everything? Yeah, so um the piece that I, I really wanna address is this issue of the of the two um the two factions. And I think it's um really selling ourselves short to describe it that way. Um I I am convinced there is at least a third, if not a fourth and a fifth faction. And that third faction is what I would call the Get Shit Done Caucus, and those are all the people who want to do the work, dang it. Um, and a lot of those people aren't involved in institutional party politics because it doesn't feel very efficient to be sitting in a meeting um, where we spend so much time on bureaucratic stuff. They want to be out doing the work. And um, and I love that caucus. That's that's the caucus that I consider myself to be from. And I think that group is a powerful group that maybe uh, doesn't give itself enough credit. Mm, mm. I appreciate I appreciate you yeah. bringing that up uh, because I, I think you are right. Um, that that I, I would say that that caucus has not held any sort of uh, power within the party <laughs> that I can tell from the outside looking in. But there are definitely people. Uh, and I think the previous caller, uh, Haley, who just just called, is it a good example of that? There are people who are currently involved in Democratic Party politics at the state or county level who are committed activists, who are committed to progressive change in the state of Alabama and are willing to actually do something about it. And um, it's just, as you allude to, it seems that uh, the Democratic Party has not been the avenue for them to to, to pursue that, uh, at least as, as yeah, and, and I think I think this is, you know, we have a instinct to be um, skeptical of institutions and bureaucracy, um, and to want to be more grassroots than that. And you know, I, I I share that sentiment. But what what changed me from being a purely grassroots activist, getting stuff done, um, to being someone who's involved in the institution of party politics um, is the fact that I recognized that's uh, that is where a that is where the money is going right now. Um, you know, it tends to be going to the big institutions, and uh, it's a barrier. I, you can only get so much done outside the party structure before, at some point, you do need to have a hand in. Um, in the institution itself. And if we just give that up, if we just let other groups, other factions um, have all of the institutional authority and all the institutional money, 
um, we are making our lives more difficult. And we can call, we can say that we have the moral high ground that we're not engaging in the nonsense they are, but also we're not getting the things done that need to be done. And the people mm-hmm. of Alabama need to have people like us in charge. People who are get shit doneers mm-hmm. need to be in charge if we're going to make real progress. So I think it's worth fighting for. And um, you know, I'm only vice chair, um, as Chair Kelly has pointed out repeatedly. That does not give me any power over the budget or um, decisions of the party. Um, but it's a step forward, and you know, I'm going to continue to um, do what I can from that position. Um, but you know, folks my age and younger, we don't we don't think of if, if we were running an institution, it wouldn't be an authoritarian institution. You know, if we're running an organization, it's going to be um, have shared leadership and um, lots of people doing lots of things, being empowered to do so. And, uh, you know, I think we can push for that. I think we have enough votes on the SDEC to push for that. Um, but if we if we shake our heads and give up, then the two factions are mm-hmm. just going to keep the, the white good old boys and the black good old boys are just going to keep fighting. And I think that's and the power that it holds. Yeah. I, and I think that our question is, is not, I don't think that either of us, um, you know, that we are certainly not anti-institutionalists, right? We're like, I, you know, we're working in. We've both in, operated in these, inside and outside. Yeah, and well, and, and with the party, and, but with the with you know with unions. Unions are big institutions, and there are some people that with some of the that, same problems, right? With some of the same problems, but we we have been convinced that you that that unions with with all the problems that that are that are similar and dissimilar from some of the issues in the Democratic Party that that unions are are a force for good and and that they're they're worth the time and effort and and it's not and generally generally it's uh not a good bet to try to build something from the ground up or try to destroy the union apparatus and and build something else we we are you know more or less fully convinced that that unions are good good institutions, and we need to work to work to build them, make them more powerful, make them more democratic, and so on and so forth. But I think that our question is, vis-a-vis the institution of the Democratic Party, is just you know, it's not an institutional question; it's a Democratic Party question. I think, and 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 like, is it would it be better to to build outside apparatuses uh, from the Democratic Party? Maybe use the Democrats as a ballot line, maybe not. Uh, but, you know, a- as opposed to actually trying to take control of the apparatus, is that actually worth it? Or can we just use it as a ballot line while building up our own stuff outside of that? And I think I think that's the question that Adam and I struggle with, as opposed to, you know, institutions, uh, you know, qua institutions, if that makes sense. Fair. Fair. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I perhaps stated it too, too strongly. But but I think that question of like whether to give up on the Democratic Party as an institution, that's why I decided not to. Is right, because right. I think I think it would be easier to reclaim um, the Democratic Party than it would be to start from scratch. But mm-hmm. I think the answer is both. We need, mm-hmm. you know, powerful organizations outside the party and we need powerful people within the party we need all of it and in the places that have succeeded it's been because of alliances where people didn't have to agree on every single issue but they built coalitions in order to get particular things done and 
I think mm-hmm. we can continue to. I think we should. I think everybody should pursue what they're good at. Right. What you're good at yeah, is yeah. running, you know, a, a DSA. Go run mm-hmm. a DSA. Um, and if what you're good at is fighting for, um, you know, party stuff, then do that. And if what you're good at is running a food pantry and other mm-hmm. mutual aid stuff, like, you know, do what you're good at. And if everybody finds their um, finds their strength. And, and we're all talking to each other. Right. Do right. Partner with other people. Yeah, that's when I think we're at our best. Yeah, and so the I I've got just a, a a couple of questions, and then we'll uh, and then we'll let you go, and we appreciate you you calling in. And I, I did want to give you give you an opportunity to, you know, some of the more uh, to to just uh, you know confirm or deny, I guess the the some of the more salacious things that that Chair Kelly said about the you know, the, the crying on the floor or whatever, you know, uh, I think we've heard from other people that that's not, that's not entirely accurate, but I wanted to, you know, give, give you a, give you a chance to respond to that yourself. Um, and then I, I wanted to ask, you know, how, what is your plan to, you know, we asked, we asked Kelly about his plan to, to, to kind of, you know, uh, turn everything into a get shit done caucus right um and and so what what are what do you think that that you can do in in your position as vice chair and so th- those are the those are the two questions yeah i mean i don't want to spend a lot of time on the salacious claims um I've, i you know i i deny those things that's that's silly um i did not lay on the floor and cry <laughs> that was that was that was my assumption when i heard that Have there been heated conversations at times with people? Absolutely. And what I take pride in is that when somebody wants to have a heated conversation with me, like, okay, let's do that. Mm -hmm. And I'm super proud of the fact that nine times out of 10, that conversation ends with us finding common ground and being able to respect one another. But this stuff is passionate. This is Mm -hmm. stuff we care deeply about. So are there ever passionate conversations? Absolutely. And and what it means to be a leader is that you, to a certain extent, you let people yell at you. Mm-hmm. A lot of people want to yell at me. Um, there's a lot of pent-up anger um, or not-so-pent-up anger um, at, at white folks who have tried to run this party and keep black folks out of power. Mm-hmm. That's a real historical phenomenon and right, right. present-day phenomenon, too. And if people want to yell at me about that, okay, that is a that is a service I can provide. I can be the person that you yell at. Um, and so have there been, have, have voices been raised? Absolutely. Um, have I been, uh, taken people down? No. Um, I sure hope not. Um, so, you know, I, to me, um, this is, this is a bizarro distraction, but I think it reflects a generational difference in how leadership works where, you know, I think folks my age and younger see leadership as a responsibility, a burden that you take on, but it doesn't mean that you get to uh, bully people or tell other people what they can and can't do. Um, it means that you have to lead using some of those those softer skills um, of building mm-hmm. coalitions and bringing people along, um, as opposed to uh, an authoritarian approach where you just tell people what they're going to do. Um, and I think Randy's from an older generation. Um, Chair Kelly is from that generation that think of power as being um, authoritarian, uh, you know, where he gets to tell people what they can and cannot do. So, you know, and I would love to see, um, you know, if Chair Kelly put out a plan and said, this is what we're going to do to turn around the party, um, 
I do think it's my responsibility as vice chair to get on board with that plan and um, assist him in implementing it. Mm-hmm. But until until that happens, until there's a um, a plan in place from the chair, I'm going to keep doing I'm going to keep doing my plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, pre-election, my plan was I want Democrats to know how amazing they are, how incredible it is that they're doing the work that they're doing. So I spent a lot of time calling candidates and county chairs and encouraging them um, and celebrating the work that they were doing. And I, we knew it wasn't going to be a great election for us, um, but I at least wanted folks to know how that they're seen, that their hard work and dedication is seen and appreciated. So that was my plan leading up to the election. Um, my plan now is, you know, I think we have to be building relationships at the grassroots level. Um, so, you know, I'd like, I'm going to try to be creating small groups of folks who um, can get to know one another, um, build those relationships and be able to support one another um, in the things that they're doing and see how those different pieces fit together. Even though someone may not be acting in the way that you act, they may not be GSDing the way you GSD, um, that doesn't mean that we're not all getting good, important work done. So um, that's at the top of my list. Um, I I don't think that will conflict um, with whatever um, plan Chairman Kelly puts forward. Um, and and you know if I had my if I had my druthers, I would have his ear and be able to um, propose plans to him for what we could do to move the party forward over the next four years. Um, he's not terribly interested in my ideas, um, but I will I will keep working on them. Tabitha, thanks for calling in. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for calling. Absolutely. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Thanks, y'all, for pushing on this issue. All right. Absolutely. Happy to. Uh, and do we still have uh, that other caller, Adam? Uh, yes, we do. Yes, All we right. Do. Let, All and right. and so, is, do we have any others after this one? Or is this the last one? Uh, last one. So, yeah, All we right. have a 256. Yeah, 256 area code. Uh, what's your name? And where are you calling from? Hi, I'm Robert Lewis Hunter. I'm calling from Gadsden, Alabama. I am a SDC member of the Youth Caucus. Great. Robert? Thanks for calling. Yeah, thanks for calling in. I appreciate it. Yeah, so what are what are uh, what were your thoughts about that chat? Something. They were they were something. That that's my uh overall not from your side, just we tried, man. We tried our we tried our best. We did a we did a lot of prep for this interview. I promise you, Jacob and I were on the phone last <laughs> night, yeah. late, talking this through. We, we we tried to to have an interview that would be useful and helpful for folks. I don't know if we succeeded, but we gave it our best shot. If two or three people come out of the conversation more willing to work in and around the party especially when it comes to labor aspects, the job had benefits. Um, Actually, on that note, there were two or three things I wanted to specifically uh, comment about. Uh, Number one, I was actually one of the people that was in the heated conversation with Tabitha Eisner and two ADC women. Um, She did not get into a screaming match. Frankly, I was more heated than she was. Um, this was right after the bylaw situation got turned down because not enough people had showed up to that meeting. Um, and I was just making comments about like, hey, I'm of a different generation. I have different values. 
and I'm more willing to kick a leader to the side if they're not actually doing their job. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't look like the chair is helping us in this particular way. Um, and I'm a representative in part of the youth in my district and my county and the state as a whole. And when I get calls from other youth members, they tell me, why in the world should I get involved in the Democratic Party when they're trying to get rid of the caucus that protects them? Um, mm-hmm. From that situation, those two particular members once it was clear that the African-American who should be agreeing with them disagreed with them, left the conversation. As for the other one, I don't know how in particular the chairman got that information about Tapita balling out on the ground because he wasn't there and most of ADC was not there because Mm -hmm. they boycotted the uh, organizing meeting four years back. Um, and I can also tell you that's not what happened. When it happened was she lost. She got a little emotional and walked out mm-hmm. in part because, you know, she put a lot of time and effort. Like most people, they need a hot second to calm down sure, 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 after sure. a particular issue like that. Or she put five, six, nine, ten months into something and it just doesn't go your way. There's a lot of baggage that comes with that that you've got to work through in less than a minute. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think Definitely. that's that's perfectly reasonable. I mean, I think any of us who've ever tried anything close to that can relate, you know, can relate to that moment and how difficult it is. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate that. I I think that's some that's some good No, no, no. I think that's some good good context. As for if you want to get involved in something outside of the party, um specific or technically inside the party. Let me rephrase that. Specifically, uh, the way the structure works in Alabama is SDC members are elected by the state house. If you live in House District 26, 34, 80, 89, or 101, those are all empty seats that you can run for. And if no one in the next, either you run in the next election or the next time we have a state party meeting, if you're the only person from, let's say, 101, that's a male, or in 101's case, they need both a male and a female. Uh, if you're the only person that fits that gender that is there from that district that wants to serve, you're automatically approved. Mm-hmm. And you can then vote on any party issue for the state party. Same thing for elections. If you want to get involved in your county party or in your house district, that's actually going to be competitive or close to competitive in uh, the next round of elections, State Senate 2 and probably 23 are good ones to get involved in. House districts elections of 2, 10, 25, 32, and 85, and districts that have colleges may have a chance to be flipped. Hmm. And do y'all have, does the, uh, you're, you're involved with the youth caucus. Does the youth caucus have like an email list that people that are, that are maybe supporters of the youth caucus, but, but are not actually on the SDEC? Um, is there a, a, like, do y'all have a way to communicate with outside supporters or, or, um, or, you know, ways for, ways for folks to get information from y'all? Mhm. Yeah. But yeah, you do have a Twitter account. Um 
y'all do have a Twitter account that's we do. Yeah. Yeah, that's at ADP Youth Caucus. ADP Youth Caucus, if anybody wants to follow that on Twitter. Robert, I really appreciate you you sharing some of those specific um you sharing some of those specific district numbers and and I'm gonna be going back and listening to this call and kind of jotting down some of those. Um, both in terms of SDEC opportunities as well as uh, some of the more competitive legislative districts. So, yeah, thank you for uh, for bringing your data today to the phone call. I would also say thank you very much for taking time out of your day and energy out of your life to deal with something that is conflicted and has been conflicted roughly for the last 10 years. Actually, on that point, I also want to make it extremely clear. Um, the how do I say this in the nice way possible? The coalition that currently has the majority power is a plurality, not a majority. Mm-hmm. Um, the Joe Reed Randy Kelly coalition is roughly about 117 to 120 votes out of 264 plus. So it is well, especially with those five or six empty districts, uh, if real organizing was put into it, uh, there could be the possibility of a more forward-leading organizing majority um, when it comes to issues like just the capability of SDC members being able to get in touch with people. Hmm. Robert, I... Any other thing that's about it? Sorry. My bad. No, 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 no. No, yeah, I, I appreciate your call, and I think that's some that's some good information. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, keep up the good work, please. Thank you. Have a good one. Yep. Thanks, yep, Robert. Too. Yeah, I know Connor. Um, I believe Connor is in the Zoom. Um, yeah. He's probably been uh, waiting. I, I texted him. Yeah. Yeah. I, te- I texted him. Said that we were going to push him about fifteen minutes. Yeah, so. I'm sure he's he's been getting a dose of Alabama. <laughs> politics alabama democratic party politics and, yeah um, well so uh, our phone calls are are you know they're not quite as silly as like paul feinbaum right uh, but we had some great callers yeah, this, we had this afternoon call, yeah. or, uh, are we afternoon yet we're pretty no, close we're pretty close um, but yeah so here to uh here to contrast the abject failure of democrats in alabama uh we've got connor lewis on the Zoom, he's president of the Seven Mountains Central Labor Council in Pennsylvania, and he's going to talk to us about the election over yonder. Connor, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm always happy to be here. How's it going, guys? Oh, well, you know, I don't... Oh, it's better now that you're here, <laughs> Better now that that's, you're here. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, we're going to oh. be able to share some good news, I think. Uh, uh, lift people's spirits a bit after the... Uh, after the struggle session we've been having this morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, honestly, um, it has been, it's been a great week in Pennsylvania, which I I expected um, it to be a little bit messier, but um, it's been good. Yeah, and that's our understanding. And so for us, we are interested in, we want to dig into the why and the how the election turned out the way that it did. We want to dig into the into labor's role in it, which which I understand was pivotal. Uh, but first, I guess, like just just tell us descriptively what happened in what happened in Pennsylvania last week. Well, um, I'm trying to figure out where to start. So, 
I think heading into the election, uh, the majority of folks that were paying attention felt fairly comfortable about the gubernatorial uh, race. And one of the big kind of uh, narratives heading into this election in general is that um, there's been an effort uh, just to kind of talk a little bit about the down ballot. Um, this was an election where for the first time in over a decade, uh, there were actually fair legislative maps, which was a sub kind of a subcurrent to the election that I think a lot of observers outside of Pennsylvania didn't pick up on. Um, but really the expectation just because of the expected kind of GOP headwinds in the political environment is that um, Shapiro, the gubernatorial candidate would win, um, that it would be a little bit dicier with the Senate race and that there would be some kind of democratic gains uh, in the legislature, but that it would retain uh, Republican control. That's not what happened. Um, Shapiro did win uh, by a massive margin. And in addition to that, Fetterman ended up won winning convincingly. Um, there was, I think the consensus that I heard heading into the election is that it was expected that it would be in the automatic recount territory, which is 0.5%. Um, and it was nowhere near that. It's looking like it'll be somewhere between a four and five point victory uh, when all the votes are counted. And Democrats, which this was on absolutely nobody's radar that it was possible, Democrats actually look like they will take control of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives for the first time since 2010. Wow. Um, so this is like, I mean, this is running the table. Um, it was on exactly nobody's radar that control of the House was legitimately in play. And there are still some races that have yet to be called, but the Pennsylvania uh, House Democratic Caucus has basically declared victory and said that they anticipate that they will have the majority. And I think that there's good reason to believe that they're correct. So um, this is, I mean, from organized labor's perspective, this is just, I mean, I think that people are still kind of in a state of disbelief because um, there's been a lot of work that went into this election result. Um, and even with that, I think that there was a general expectation that we would be better off than we were you know, before the election. But the idea that we are actually going to be able to get a legislative agenda that will actually have a serious chance of um, passing uh, and certainly will at least, um, you know, get a floor vote in the House um, and may potentially make it through the Senate. I mean, I think that a lot of the past 10 years in Pennsylvania for labor have been playing defense. I mean, mm -hmm. in Tom Corbett's, you know, administration, it was fighting off right to work, which was successfully done. It's been stopping attacks on public sector uh, collective bargaining and trying to get maybe the little win here or there, um, usually fairly small ones, but trying to get, you know, a thing here or there that could pass. Um, but the idea of actually pushing a broad legislative agenda, that hasn't happened for over a decade. And mm -hmm. it's very likely that that's what's going to happen with the um, new legislature. So I mean, so the the state the state house Democrats are probably going to help hold it. State Senate is still going to be in Republican hands, but the governor correct. is going to be a Democrat. Fetterman won, obviously, and so that's kind of the lay of the land. Yep, yep, that's pretty much where things stand right now.
And some some uh, swing seats in Congress too, right? Yeah. So there was a lot of, I think, concern about um, Susan Wilde, for example, uh, Matt Cartwright, uh, Chris Deluzio, who is himself, you know, from a union uh, union background, who is running to replace um, Connor Lamb. Um, all of those were considered to be kind of uh, seats that were at risk. Susan Wilds particularly was very close. Matt Cartwright is um, an extremely progressive Democrat, considering, um, you know, that he's in an area of Northeast PA that's been trending a little bit more toward the GOP, um, but is union heavy. He was um, the prime sponsor of legislation in Congress that would establish a federal, you know, right for public sector employees to collectively bargain. Um, again, they, they ran the table. I mean, you know, pretty much, um, in fact, all of, you know, Labor's endorsed candidates um, won their congressional races. Wow. So, um, which is a huge contrast to, you know, wow. frankly, the the mess that occurred in New York, where um, things definitely went very differently. Right, right. Well, and, and, and certainly a uh, huge contrast to what we were just just discussing right. with the state of Alabama. <laughs> mm. Well, yeah, well, and, and Illinois, I understand had maybe not as spectacular a night as as Pennsylvania, but they had a good night as well. They codified the right to unionize in, in their constitution, banned right to work in their constitution. Um, so I don't know how much I don't know how much you could speak descriptively to the situation in Illinois. Um, but but if you if but but could you do that? And also maybe let's let's dive in a bit to the description of what happened in New York just just for people's understanding and, and so that so that we can kind of compare and contrast what's going on in these different places right yeah you know i i could say i can't really say too much about illinois though i do know that one of the huge uh fights in illinois was of course to codify the right to collective bargaining and ban right to work which you know on the other hand you saw efforts in tennessee to enshrine right to work in the state right. constitution and so i think it was you know a smart move by um by organized labor to really try to codify those protections now because I will say that, you know, as a former um, union member in Missouri, um, the fact that they codified the right to collectively bargain in the state constitution in 1946 has paid dividends mm. down the road in, um, you know, fighting off, um, you know, GOP led attacks on uh, collective bargaining rights, et cetera, um, now. So, I mean, getting those things in um, is a must. And something that I think that labor should be looking at, um, even in states, you know, like New York, New Jersey, you know, just in the Northeast, where those rights don't seem under threat, still get them into the state constitution, still make sure that those, you know, protections are codified. Um, in New York, you know, I mean, the, the baseline problem is, quite frankly, that the New York Democratic Party is a machine that is more or less a paper tiger hmm. um, that realistically has been coasting on the fact that they have a two to one advantage in voter registration and declining to actually seriously campaign in any real way. Um, and particularly, I think one of the biggest flaws in New York politics is that in statewide elections and just in general, they've coasted on their strength downstate in you know the five boroughs um, in the lower Hudson Valley and really ignored upstate um, and so I think that that 
has really been a big part of a lot of the election results that they saw where it was closer than average. Um, and a lot of it is that really the New York Democratic Party has really neglected trying to have a presence in every single county of New York because the assumption is that we can basically just win on you know downstate votes on doing you know decently well in erie county where buffalo is um you know doing decently well in rochester doing decently well in albany we don't have to worry that much about actually having a presence statewide um and of course you know they in addition to just not really campaigning just catastrophically messed up redistricting which gave them a tougher you know you know road to um uh, road to victory to start with and they given that you know the the fact that they messed up redistricting it's really difficult to understand why they sat back on their heels so much in campaigning and why you know Kathy Hochul um, you know really didn't do all that much until the late stages of the campaign where it looked like Zeldin was actually going to make a run for it um, it just it's hard to really understand why the New York Democratic Party um, just embraces that level of complacency mm. until you consider that they still have, even though they did nothing, they still have a trifecta. Right. And the people that are going to pay for it are the rest of the American people who are, I mean, that, that probably will decide if Republicans take control of Congress, it's going to be because the New York democratic party messed up redistricting right. and didn't campaign. And I mean, there's no, there's no nice way to put it. They That's probably sad. cost control of Congress. Yeah. And the, the leaving upstate alone and just allowing Republicans to dominate upstate, I think is a really big contrast to what happened in Pennsylvania, where you showed a map of the state that showed um, I, the, the, the arrows were not scaled, so I, I'm not sure exactly what they were, but it, it, it looked like it showed on, on this state um, large swings towards Democrats across the whole state. And even more, even and even larger swings in the more rural parts of the state outside of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, uh, and and so it wasn't just you increased turnout in Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, in uh, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, Democrats swung the whole state, the whole state, you know, in rural county everywhere, and so and that's a huge contrast from from like you said from Democrats in New York just allowing Republicans to have the upper part of the state. Yeah, you know, it's one benefit, I guess, of Pennsylvania is because, I mean, Philadelphia, of course, is huge, but our political geography is a little bit different in that you don't have quite the same, you know, just massive concentration in, you know, like in the five boroughs where it can kind of lead you to maybe neglect the rest of the state because of course philadelphia is an epicenter of politics and quite frankly you know even within pennsylvania sometimes um the rest of the state is a little bit neglected um you know in favor of philadelphia but that's not what happened uh this cycle and i'd contrast it for example to 
2016, where the uh, Clinton campaign strategy was basically to um, campaign in Philadelphia, uh, campaign in Bucks, Montgomery, and Delaware counties, which are the three suburban counties uh, and exurban counties that surround Philadelphia, and then to campaign campaign in Allegheny County and Pittsburgh and the Pittsburgh suburbs, and basically have no presence in the rest of the state. Mm. That was not at all what happened in this election. There was a ground game, both from organized labor and uh, I think especially from the Fetterman campaign, in every county in the in the state. I mean, and, you know, even Josh Shapiro, who I think took a little bit more of a traditional kind of approach to his campaign, was doing uh, rallies uh, just, you know, the week before the election in Blair County, which voted for Trump 75%. Mm. And you have the top of the ticket campaigning there a week out from the election. And I think that these are the kinds of things that produce that huge swing. And the interesting part about this election is that this election, unusually for Pennsylvania, is almost about everywhere but Philadelphia. Turnout was actually significantly down in Philadelphia. It was, it looks like it was about 42%. Um, which compared to about 50, I think 52% in 2018 in those midterms. There were actually more votes cast in Allegheny County than in Philadelphia, even though there are significantly more registered voters in Philadelphia. And the fact that so many of those votes in um, Allegheny County and, you know, the surrounding counties, um, Fayette County, you know, uh, going down into southwestern Pennsylvania, Washington County, the reason that so many of those votes broke for Democrats, John Fetterman and Josh Shapiro, is because of labor's ground game. And particularly, you know, a lot of credit has to be given to the Allegheny uh, Fayette Labor Council and my uh, union brother, Darren Kelly, the president of that Labor Council, which has been just... I mean, campaigning relentlessly in Western PA to talk to union members about this election. And it's it's weird, you know, because it's almost as though the story of this election is everywhere outside of Philadelphia, which is not usually how things play out right. in Pennsylvania. Yeah, and that, that is, you know, that that is pretty interesting. And so what was, so there was both a, um, there was a, persuasion game happening within the labor movement to get uh union members to vote for democrats and there was also a uh a utilization of union members to get other people out to vote or get, to get other union members out to vote you know union members uh knocked on a lot of doors i think unite here was very active mm -hmm. in pennsylvania in getting out the vote as they were in georgia as uh they were in in, in nevada right uh with culinary 226 um and so what what was the message from uh what was the message from democrats on the ballot that convinced labor to really go to the mat um and and uh uh do you think that that was do you think that was good that labor really went to the mat what was the message should they have gone to the mat so hard and um uh and it, yeah so so yeah, tell us, tell us that. So 
I think that a lot of the motivation in the gubernatorial race was really, um, really that Doug Mastriano was simply so extreme and was going to absolutely destroy the movement. He was going to sign right to work. He was going to attack public sector collective bargaining um, that there was no option other than to, you know, go to the mats and ensure that he got nowhere near the governor's mansion um, and to ensure that we had a um, Democrat in office. And I will say that, you know, one thing that I think really resonated with um, with labor, particularly in the building trades department with um, Josh Shapiro, who as AG really, you know, has a little bit less to do with, you know, um, there's not exactly as much of a labor record, though I will I will give him credit in that he tried to use the AG's office uh, to protect workers as best he could. And one of the big things was just about, I think, a year ago, um, they reached a, um, well, one, the AG's office actually brought criminal charges against a major contractor that's actually located in my labor council, uh, Seven Mountains that um, had basically stolen over $20 million in wages from their employees over the span of years. Wow. So over a thousand employees, workers had had wages stolen from them um, and through violations of um, Pennsylvania prevailing wage laws and the um, you know federal prevailing wage laws and secured a $20 million settlement that got those employees. Some of them got, you know, checks for, you know, five figures. Mm -hmm. uh, in wages that were stolen from them. And I think that that was a huge message that really resonated with building trades because, um, you know, very few people are out there other than organized labor holding contractors accountable and prevailing wage violations are, and, you know, worksite safety are huge issues. And so I think that that was a big one. I think that for Fetterman, there was a lot of enthusiasm because it wasn't just a question of keeping Oz out. It was a question of electing a person that put unions and put organized labor front and center in his entire campaign. And you rarely see candidates put organized labor as central to their campaign as John Fetterman did. And it wasn't just in rhetoric, he was showing up um, and has, as Lieutenant Governor, consistently shown up on picket lines. He has done what he can do to support workers, um, you know, even before he declared that he was going to be running for the U.S. Senate seat. And so I think that there was a lot, and I even saw it, you know, just a small thing, like I had um leftover you know union members for shapiro yard signs i got rid of all of my fetterman ones like those mm -hmm. ones were going out quickly um and there's a level of enthusiasm that i think was because people really believed um and i think rightly that fetterman cares about organized labor cares about protecting unions cares about expanding the right to organize um in a way that you just don't see from too many federal candidates or candidates at any level. Well, now, you know, now, Connor, I, I, I don't want you to get ahead of your skis, though, because mm -hmm. I read on Twitter that Pennsylvania actually confirms the power of the middle of the road. Um, 
saying that uh, this is from uh, Matty Glacius. Oh, God. Saying Fetterman did great, but he also ran nine points behind Josh Shapiro. Uh, maybe that's because Shapiro was seen as more moderate than Fetterman, or maybe it's because Mastriano was seen as more extreme than Oz. But either way, Pennsylvania confirms the power of the middle of the road. So do you think that you're getting a bit ahead of your skis on, on this, uh, you know, on your analysis here? I'm trying to think what I what I can get away with saying here. <laughs> Um, we're off the we're off of FM, yeah. so we we don't have those uh, FCC censors here. So all right, uh, um, <laughs> I think Matt Iglesias should sit the hell down. To be honest, I mean, I, I honestly like it, it's it's such an incredibly lazy take um, for so many reasons. I think that the biggest clear problem with the argument is that Oz had over a hundred million dollars spent in support of his candidacy, whether through a tax on John Fetterman or through, you know, just media buys on his behalf. I mean, there was the, the, the airwaves have been saturated with things about Oz's candidacy, attacks on John Fetterman. I mean, it, it's, it's been just omnipresent. Mastriano barely ran a campaign hmm. of being just a whack job fringe candidate. And I mean, he ended up spending, I think, at most $2 million on bot media, which is more what you would expect from a congressional campaign rather than a statewide gubernatorial campaign in a state as large as Pennsylvania they are night and day and comparing the two is um just utterly ridiculous the other point that is that we've already tested the appeal of the middle of the road right. in the senate race here mm. connor lamb got his ass kicked he got destroyed in the primary because that's not what people wanted and he was the quintessential, I mean, Connor Lamb was basically created in a DCCC lab as mm -hmm. the perfect centrist candidate, the perfect middle of the road. And that is what he ran on. He explicitly ran on, I am a more middle of the road candidate, and that's why you should elect me or why you should vote for me to become the um, become the nominee, because I am the only one that can win Pennsylvania because I am that middle of the road candidate. He couldn't win the primary, and then John Fetterman is going to end up winning by about five points. Right. So mm -hmm. if anything, this is a confirmation of the fact that you do not need to run those nonsense middle of the road campaigns to win in Pennsylvania. And not only that, that is not what Pennsylvanians want. And so right. the armchair quarterbacking from people like Matt is just funny because every single, you know, election cycle, whether it's midterms, general elections, whatever, like if it's a presidentials, there's always a ton of people that have never set foot in Pennsylvania, or if they have never set foot outside of Philadelphia, that have big thoughts about what this means and what Pennsylvania's election results mean. Um, and I think that they should probably do a little bit less talking and a little bit more listening. 
Well, and I think that just and and your tweet response to him, I think, put some put a couple of numbers to to some of the general statements that you were making here. And 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 he said, and and actually, one of the things that he said in this tweet was just false, it, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. He said. Uh, Glacius said that uh, uh, Fetterman ran nine points behind Shapiro, but you said that Fetterman's at 51% and Shapiro's at 56%. So he's only five points behind Shapiro, not nine. Uh, and then, Correct. you know, you're, you're, you're talking about Fetterman and Oz, the, the race there, you said in your tweet that they were matched in spending where Mastriano was outspent 10 times. Like, you know, that's got to have an right. impact, right? right? And then that federal yeah. races always tend to be a little bit closer in Pennsylvania. And I think that those are, you know, that, the the case that you made and and the additions of of some of those facts in that tweet are, are like how it you know why would you why would you be trying to to draw this conclusion unless you know you just like really really wanted to like you're mm-hmm. coming to the thing with this you know with this idea and you're going to make sure to take that idea out of the situation right i mean yeah. it's i was i was just going to say this be clear someone like matt iglesias and his big brain are going to be pushing for that sort of uh, you know, lesson learned, regardless of what the outcome was. Mm. Had Fetterman lost, it would have been proof that you needed a moderate candidate. Had Fetterman mm. won by 20 points, it would have been proof that a moderate would have won by 25 points, right? Like, that's... Mm. We're going to get that from from that section of media. Uh, so that's why I think it is important to have folks on who can can tell the real story there and, like, get into, okay, so what actually happened on the ground and what was really motivating people? How did right. you really do it? And, you know, the thing that's, I think, particularly just unacknowledged, the important thing is that Fetterman won. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, at a certain point, you're just running up the tally because, yeah, of course, you want to run up the score. But, you know, the important part is that he won. And even just for the sake of a hypothetical, if Connor Lamb would have won by five more points. Connor Lamb's politics also suck. Right. And so I would take a person whose politics are better that will still win over a person whose politics suck and will win by a little bit more. Mm. And that's what he just doesn't, because it's not about politics to, right. to Matt Iglesias in any real way. It's not about actual political values or ideology. It's just about this weird kind of technocratic, you know, win it's by sports. the most, uh, you know, yeah, just whatever is most popular to the most amount of people, you know, that can get the most votes. That's what we go with. Right. Yeah, I think they treat it like sports and it's just um, not a whole lot different from how they look at baseball. Uh, it's just mm. abstract numbers and popularity contests divorced from the actual substance, uh, because that's you know that's the re- that's what's important, right? Is what would this person deliver back to his constituents? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Well, and so let let's talk about that then to wrap it up. Uh, you know, Pennsylvania House in Democratic hands, Fetterman in the Senate. Uh, Shapiro in the uh, governor's mansion. We better see some shit. What? Yeah, and, and you <laughs> talked about you talked about you know that that maybe we can see a, a, a real legislative agenda for working people in Pennsylvania. Um, do 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 you do you do you actually anticipate the House Democrats coming forward with that? And then if yes, what is that agenda going to look like? 
how much of it do you think will be able to pass before the next election? How much of it is just going to be, uh, you know, message bills and stuff like that? And what do you anticipate from from Fetterman in in the Senate? And what can what can Shapiro do through the executive office? So those are so I guess what in in those three places where Democrats have control in Pennsylvania, what do you what do you see coming out of each of them? So I think that one of the big things that we're going to see in Pennsylvania is um, I think that two of the first items are going to be one raising the minimum wage um, because Pennsylvania is at the federal minimum and wow. every single state, um, you know, every single state around us has raised uh, the minimum wage above that. Um, and so I think that raising the minimum wage is going to be um, an immediate, you know, immediate move. Um, and do you think that can get past I, the Republicans in the Senate? There have been a couple of attempts, not a couple, it's an annual attempt, and there have been a couple of deals that have been um, made that have almost uh, made it through. And typically, those have, fa have fallen apart in the House rather mm -hmm. than in the Senate. Um, Democrats, while not taking control of the Senate, um, did narrow the margins. And so there's a potential path, I think, for some deal to uh, be made on the minimum wage that could potentially make it through um, through the legislature. Um, and I anticipate that that's going to be one of the central focuses is raising the minimum wage. Um, and I do think that that is likely in some form to happen, whether it's I, I would be a little bit more cautious about raising it to $15, but I think that, you know, there's a serious possibility of a phased increase to $15, and um, certainly I think that there will be an increase over where it is now. Um, I think that the other big thing that will be a fairly immediate priority is uh, creating a OSHA state plan for Pennsylvania, because um, public sector, you know, there, there's been a long conversation over years, and this has been a priority for the state federation here, is actually um, ensuring that there are OSHA protections for employees um, in the public sector. Uh, because, um, you know, that Pennsylvania is one of the states that does not have that. Um, and, you know, there's been a big push for it. And I think that that's something that I would anticipate being um, a fairly immediate discussion. Um, and in fact, um, there's already been some discussions that actually even, you know, prior to the election, some House Republicans were on board with um, actually, you know, looking at uh, expanding OSHA protections um, in uh, to the public sector, uh, because there, there's a handful of House Republicans, I don't want to give them too much credit, but there are a handful of House Republicans that um, are reasonable on union issues, um, yeah, which is, you know, there, there's still kind of that uh, a couple of leftovers of that old kind of labor wing mm. of the Republican Party here, um, because I mean, Pennsylvania, um, the the pub, the bill that established uh, the right to uh, collectively bargain in the public sector was passed by a Republican legislature and signed by a Republican governor. Mm. And that's more or less faded out of the Republican Party here, but there's still enough of them, both in uh, the House and the Senate, that I think with Democratic control of the House and, um, you know, with a narrowed gap in the Senate, there's going to be some real, um, some real progress made. And I think a lot of pressure on Senate Republicans to, um, to compromise. And I think that one of the things that I anticipate coming out of, um, 
you know, coming out of uh, Shapiro is a much more aggressive um, budget proposal um, than has been the norm, I think, for the past couple of years. And Tom Wolf has um, made fairly aggressive proposals, um, of course, with the expectation that they're going to get scaled back when they hit the legislature. Um, but I think that there's going to be a lot more pressure to deliver in budget discussions. And I think that a lot of underfunded agencies, uh, for example, Department of Labor and Industry and uh, the unemployment compensation system, um, you know, I think that there's going to be some real possibility of discussion on how to potentially um, increase funding toward a lot of state agencies that interact with workers' rights and workers' protections that have really been, um, you know, hard for, uh, hard up for funding with Republican control of the legislature. And so, and I also anticipate that, you know, Shapiro will include in his budget proposal um, things like, you know, $15 minimum wage increase, um, things like that as well. So um, I think that one of the big question marks uh, is with Shapiro becoming the governor, there will be an attorney general vacancy. And I think that there are a lot of questions, um, and I don't think this discussion has really started too much yet, but who's going to replace them? And I think that that does have some meaning for, um, you know, organized labor and working people, because again, you know, Shapiro has been fairly good about using the AG's office to go after, you know, um, pharmaceutical companies, to go after, you know, contractors that are stealing wages from their employees. And so ensuring that there's an AG that's going to continue that, I think is a major priority. And I will say quite candidly, my nightmare scenario is that Connor Lamb somehow ends up the AG. Mm. Um, I don't know that that's too likely, but I will say that, you know, there's a small list of people that seem like credible candidates um, that could also get confirmed by the Senate. And that I think is gonna be the question mark is, there still is Republican control of the Senate. There are some guide rails that prevent them from really stonewalling. They're going to have to act on confirmation. They can't just decline to um, fill the position. They have to actually vote within 25 days of the nomination being made or the nomination is deemed confirmed. Um, so there's going to probably be some maneuvering to kind of figure out, okay, who are we proposing? Who can get through the Senate? And I think that there, that discussion is probably already happening behind the scenes, but I think the big question is, is that person going to be someone that's going to prioritize protecting workers' rights? And then what about, um, what about from Fetterman in the Senate? I think that he is going to very quickly become one of the most vocal proponents of the PRO Act, um, which, you know, obviously seemed to hit the skids, um, but if Democrats are able to pick up 51 seats, which looks like a very real possibility, depending on how the Georgia runoff goes. Um, I mean, I anticipate he's immediately going to become a co-sponsor and he's going to become one of the biggest uh, advocates for it. And my real hope is that he um, is put on, um, I think it's labor and education. They, they have different names for the House and the Senate, but you know, the labor and education committee, right. because um, you know, I think that he would be an incredibly strong voice for workers um, if he is, you know, um, assigned to that committee. So, um, and, and I 
feel fairly confident that he would have some interest in that uh, committee. Um, I, I have no inside knowledge, but just based on how central organized labor has been to uh, his campaign. Um, and, you know, I, I would be surprised if, you know, that wasn't, wasn't something that um, his transition team is looking at. He'd be hanging out with, uh, with our Senator Tommy Tuberville on that committee. So. You know, I, I truly hope that I saw this tweet and I, I really hope that it's true. Um, it, it actually truly happens, but um, they really just need to assign Fetterman to just like shadow J.D. Vance everywhere and just loom nice. over him. As, <laughs> um, and honestly, you know, I'm hoping that they change the Senate rules to um, actually allow or to change committee assignments. So it's not by seniority, but it's by size. So I feel like go. Fetterman is going to have his pick of, you know, what yeah. committee he wants to be on. He's, uh, a, he's a big boy. Yeah, I saw another one uh, that said it was, it was uh, why does Fetterman, the largest of the senators, not simply eat the other 99? <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe we can see that oh. and just have like uh, the, you know, the U.S. Uh, Fetterman and the U.S. House. <laughs> right. Uh, well, you know, if Fetterman were to, to take down Tommy Tuberville. Yeah. I wouldn't be mad about it. Yeah. I, I would take Fetterman in a, in a scrap over Tuberville. Tuberville, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I don't think he can hang. He's just, no, no. he's been relying on other people playing hard for so long. Yeah. Can't do it himself. Well, Connor, I, I really appreciate it. I think you've uh, really broken down the situation in, uh, in Pennsylvania really well. Uh, and it's definitely a ray of hope looking to right. see good things and good reports from you out of Pennsylvania on the show in the future. Absolutely. Thanks, man. We really appreciate it. Yep. Have a good weekend. Thanks for all you did for the election. Absolutely. Great work. All right. Thanks. All right. Let's uh, we're coming up on the end of the show, but let's let's go ahead. We had uh, three more segments and, and maybe we'll just hit we'll just hit this one about Elon Musk. Um, because yeah, I, th we, I think it'll be I think it'll be fun. And and um We've had a packed show today. It's packed already twelve thirty. Absolutely, yeah. Shoo. So yeah, but this one, this one is also a bit of a lighter story, right? So we we've been in a struggle session during the main show talking about the Democrats, and and then you know, um, Connor brought us up. He brought us up you know, on some serious stuff, but but this one is this one is just kind of just mostly just kind of funny and 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 illustrative, and so so. Uh, we, but we will be able to tie it to some broader trends of, of employer-employee relations, and, and that is Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. Um, we saw the public back and forth between him and Twitter before he owned it, where he, you know, variously tried to tried to back out and push forward and back out again, and and ended up the thing was that the shareholders at Twitter uh, called his bluff and and made him pay up because he made the offer at a at a price point that was above what Twitter was worth. Oh, it was inflated. Yeah. Absolutely. A $44 billion uh, uh, offer. And so because that was above the price point, shareholders were like, well, you know, this is the best that we're ever going to get. Right. And you made Grab the, the offer. Bag and run. Yeah. So, so that's exactly what they did. They grabbed the bag out of his hands and ran. Um, and part of that bag apparently was contributed to by the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, <laughs> like, I think those are some of the investors in really? the company now. Yeah. I hadn't heard that, but it, I mean, that's not at all shocking. Uh, 
kind yeah, of, they're like, I guess I should assume that someone like Elon Musk has some business dealings with the Saudi. Yeah, Saudi Arabia is the second largest shareholder in Twitter. Second large. I, that's my understanding. Let me make sure that I'm not uh, peddling. Saudi Prince Al Walid becomes Twitter's second largest shareholder. Yep, yep. So hmm. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, no fake, fake news. news. No fake news here. Um, and and so so now he and <laughs> Saudi Prince <laughs> Al Walid uh, own Twitter. And the first thing he did when he came into that position was institute and every other employee uh, policy. (laughs) He just fired half the staff. Within a week, within a week, he fired half the staff. 3,700 folks cut from the company. Um, That's just insane. Yeah. And now, now, look, you know, 37,000, 3,700 people. A total of like eight thousand employees. Eight thousand employees to me sounds like a lot for what Twitter does. I don't know how the running of Twitter can have enough for eight thousand employees. Uh, and so you know, I don't. I'm not saying that maybe there's not some fat to be trimmed there. It's possible. Right. And, but- and I want to say that as well too, because I acknowledge that many of these employees at Twitter are some of the most privileged and comfortable employees right, right. in the country uh, because. While they may be workers, they, Most you know, have comfortable right. office clickety clack on the computer jobs, making six figures for a silly website. Um, yeah. So I, you know, like I get that, and, and I understand because I, I see people's reactions publicly where it's like, well, you know, these people are making four times what I make. I don't really feel sorry for them. Or like, hey, I'm out here busting my ass in the heat and the cold mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. Do I yeah. really feel bad for Twitter employees? And it's like, yes, we can acknowledge the relative privilege and comfort uh, that pro- that presumably most of these employees had. I'm sure not all, but presumably many of them. Uh, we can acknowledge that while also still seeing just how messed up it is. Yeah, and, and how like feeling some amount of sympathy for the people that were laid off, but also... Like recognizing the the arrogance and the silliness of somebody coming in and in less than a week firing almost four thousand people. Right. Like right. I mean, right. I mean, even if we even if we right. feel no sympathy, even if we think that these people deserved it, even if we think they deserved it, like let's just grant that just for the sake of this two second, two, you know, two minute uh, 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 conversation here. How? Can you just from a business perspective, how can you possibly know that those thirty seven hundred folks were not an asset to the company right. after only a week? Like that's just physically, physically not possible. Of course, you can't. You cannot know that. And that's the answer from a just just from a business standpoint. Just from right. I'm just gonna run a business. You cannot know that almost four thousand people are not an asset to the company in a week. It goes, it goes beyond being, like, cold-hearted, cold-blooded. It's just stupidity. Right. Like, actual foolishness. I mean, even, like, if we were to accept the role of CEO and owner as legitimate, and let's just say that we do, for again, for the sake of this, for the sake of this hypothetical, we both hate Twitter employees and we believe that, that you know, bosses deserve to have their position, right? These are, neither of these things that are things that we all, let's just say they do. Let's just say that we do. Bosses are legitimate. We hate Twitter employees. Okay, moving forward. Uh, then taking on a new quote-unquote leadership role as CEO 
It's just simply impossible to prescribe such huge changes. The real, like, actual business, the humble and honest thing to do, if you're not high on your own supply, would be to just sit at the helm and observe. Go talk to these department heads. Talk to the people in the, you know, just observe for, like, months. For two, you know, 60 days at least. Just 60 days and just see how the company is run currently right how is it how are things being done you have to assess what you're inheriting exactly exactly and and like i said at the top this is the thing that i do believe i i've no doubt that there are some things that could run better over there at twitter headquarters they can you know anywhere there are things that can be done to improve it and and maybe it's possible some of those positions were superfluous. I, I'm totally down for that, but he cannot have known that in a week. It no. is hubris and and pride and arrogance, and that's and that's what this system creates, where you've got these people who reckon that they're magic because they own a company. They reckon that they're magic, and they have this you know magic, uh, uh, just this magic sauce, and they can just do things just by virtue of their big brain, right? And that's just not the case. That's just not the case. Um, you can't have known that in a week. It's impossible. And and one reason that we know that that is a physically impossible task is because he admitted it a couple days later. Let's put this graphic up, Adam. It's, this is from Nat, Matt Navarra on Twitter. Confirmed. Twitter is now asking some fired workers to please come back. Some were laid off by mistake. Mm. Like, just an accident. Whoops. <laughs> Whoopsie-daisy. Some were let go before management realized that their experience is needed to build new features that Elon Musk is planning. Good lord. And that's the thing that you would learn if you were not high on your own supply and you were you recognized your fallibility as a human and you didn't have this high estimation of your own of your own brain. You know... This right. is the thing. If you sat there for 60 days and you just observed, this would not have happened, right? You would not have accidentally laid off people by mistake, and you certainly would not have laid off people that you for uh, 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 people that you needed their experience. You wouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have done that if you had just done the smart businessman thing to do. But that's not what he did. He let people go even though he needed their experience to build new features. And now more folks are leaving, specifically folks in privacy and security, stating that Musk is trying to roll out new features without having those features go through the proper review and potent and, and these new features that he's trying to roll out is potentially putting users, which include governments and government officials, right? Unions, union officials, at significant security risk. These folks, as they left, like heads of security departments and whatever, they actually said that the FTC could potentially find the company billions for the things that they're seeing before they left. And they disseminated information about whistleblower protections as they were walking out right. the door. That's always a, a sign of a business going well when people are quitting and uh, spreading messages of, here's how to be a whistleblower <laughs> right. uh, as they leave the office. And, you know... I'm glad you mentioned that about the FTC because there is a consent order or consent decree that Twitter is mm. locked into with the 
Federal Trade Commission uh, regarding user privacy and user data. Mm -hmm. And so FTC has already come out and said they are uh, very concerned about what they're seeing and that there are tools in their toolbox through this consent order uh, that they plan to use. So he's got more trouble on the way, almost certainly. Yeah, and that's not something, and I've seen some people talk about like, Oh, you know, this is just because you don't, you know, that you're you don't like that he's a Republican or whatever. And no, like obviously, like how can you not see that there there would be serious security concerns uh, uh, associated with changing a platform that hundreds of millions of people use, hundreds of millions of people use for for private communications, for public communications, that they have passwords, passwords that might be linked to to bank accounts, to uh, to government services. All of yeah. these, they're real security issues that are going to implicate people's lives. And so the FTC should absolutely, should absolutely, as a nonpartisan thing, take the issue of, American security seriously, right? That's a ser- That's that's a real, that's a real thing. And certainly hold the company accountable for its own, um, its own promises, more or less, mm-hmm. right? You you've gone on the record. Yeah, you have to be you have to be held accountable there, and uh, you know, you just like one of the commenters uh, in YouTube, like you just have to wonder what was the plan, what. Did you think any of this through? What were you trying to accomplish here? Uh, because it's just one like snafu after another. It's it's a comedy of errors with this. Right. One of the new features that Musk uh, want, wanted to roll out was Twitter Blue, which included an eight dollar a month verification badge, which was previously how we knew that somebody was real, um, but now. W- all it says is that people paid eight dollars to Twitter, right? Uh, and that went about exactly as well as you would think <laughs> if you were not a dumbass billionaire high on your own supply, right? But let's take a look at a couple of these highlights from the from the two days of uh, of Twitter Blue verification. We have a verified George W. Bush account saying, I miss killing Iraqis, being quote tweeted by a verified Tony Blair account saying, same, TBH. Probably two of the more accurate things uh, to ever be associated with those two individuals on Twitter. (laughs) No doubt, no doubt. We have a verified Eli Lillian company saying that we are excited to announce insulin is free now. That got a lot of likes. Oh, yes, it did. Uh, (laughs) It had a lot of real world impact, right? That you're about to uh, share some numbers. It's going to be interesting to see how that happens again. Yeah. Uh, Then we had a second different Eli Lilly account that was verified say, we apologize to those who have been served a misleading message from a fake Lily account about the cost of diabetic care. Humalog is now $400. We can do this whenever we want, and there's nothing you can do about it. Suck it. Our official Twitter account is at Lily Padco. And, <laughs> uh, and that cost Eli Lily and Company, the real Eli Lily and Company, billions of dollars in stock their stock plummeted like 10 to 20 percent after these tweets 
went out because apparently people thought this was the real thing. I don't know. They thought and, like a, a rogue intern or something. But. Right. And that's that's what I said last night when you were telling me about this. Like, obviously, this this is just more evidence that these folks on Wall Street maybe aren't quite as brilliant as they're portrayed in the media uh, because it, why? Why would right. this impact your investment at all to right. see a joke tweet? Um, well, and, unless and you were an idiot. Said, yeah, well, and somebody said possibly it's that the cost of insulin got in the news again and people got upset at Eli Lilly because they were reminded of how utterly evil and depraved they are as a company. Um, but another one was from a verified Lockheed Martin account saying, we will begin halting all weapons sales to Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the United States until further investigation into their record of human rights abuses. Hashtag we are LM. If only. Um, yeah. Okay. If only. <laughs> yeah, now, you know, the Bush tweet, mostly just funny, but the stocks of Eli Lilly and Lockheed did drop by literally billions of dollars after these fake tweets. And so the ability... Probably had some sad folks here in Huntsville. <laughs> the ability to buy it, buy a blue check for $8 was axed after being available for two days. We are still getting some of these fake parody accounts because people who already had Twitter blue are still keeping the blue check. And so some people are still changing their account names and stuff like that um, who only have Twitter blue. So we'll see what happens. But um, I'm sure that we'll get some more fun ones. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bernie responded to Eli Lilly's actual response which Eli Lilly's actual response is, we apologize to those who have been served a misleading message from a fake Lilly account. Our official Twitter is at LillyPad. And, um, and that's the real, actual Eli Lilly and company. And, and Bernie responded to that, saying, let's be clear, Eli Lilly should apologize for increasing the price of insulin by over 12,000% since 1996 to $275, while it costs less than $10 to manufacture the inventors of insulin sold their patents in 1923 for $1 to save lives, not to make Eli Lilly's CEO obscenely rich. Which is true. Which is true. But he got quote-unquote fact-checked by Elon Musk itself, himself, uh, presumably trying to, you know, assuage the fears of advertisers and investors in the company. Yeah, uh... Turns out when you lay off the entire comms department, you just have to individually go respond to everyone's uh, concerned tweets. So we'll see how long he keeps that up. Yeah. I said, imagine not very long. Yeah. He said full answer to insulin price question is complex. No, it's not. Short answer is that original insulin discovered in 1921, not 1923, oh wow, <laughs> is inexpensive, costing as little as $25. New higher efficacy analog variants of insulin are more expensive. Uh, yeah. Uh, so how much do those new higher ef efficacy analog variants of insulin cost to manufacture? Not right. $275. Right. And that is the thing. Okay. So maybe, maybe original insulin, you know, I don't know exactly the numbers, but I'm confident. And, and I'm confident I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm confident of the, uh, of the dynamics. And the dynamics are going to be something like original insulin is inexpensive and costs $2 to manufacture per dose, whereas new higher efficacy variants cost ten dollars to and 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 so and that and it's more ten times more expensive if those are the numbers uh but that still doesn't justify three hundred dollars for insulin and that's the thing right. that's the thing absolutely not this is all very funny but of course uh you know 
it is going to have actual real impacts on the employees at Twitter, former employees and current employees. It's going to have impacts on journalists who have built a following over the last decade. And all because we have a system that allows someone to just buy an entire thing that tens of thousands of people have worked to build as far as the code base, that hundreds of millions of people have used, contributed to the culture of over years. We have a system that allows one guy to just own that because he has some money. We have a system that allows one guy to own that thing that tens of thousands of people have built with their labor that hundreds of millions of people have contributed to the culture of. We have a system where one guy can buy it because he has money. Our friend and comrade Josh Armstead from Unite Here Local 23 had some good commentary on this. In uh, his tweet says, This chaos you're seeing on Twitter now is literally the same chaos many a worker goes through when a venture capitalist buys out a food place, a retail spot, a grocery store, or a coal mine, like our brothers and sisters right. down in Brookwood. Right. And then squeezes labor and quality to suck every penny before it goes belly up. So, I mean, you know, this is what uh, the, what we're experiencing as users of Twitter, to the extent that, you know, other people have made the incorrect decision to get on the platform, uh, or that the employees of Twitter are experiencing. So many workers have to go through this all the time because we have a system that allows one person to control everything just because they have money. And I mean, you had some, you had some like personal anecdotes here, like right here in Athens of that happening, right? Yeah, now. yeah. I mean, I'm aware of a, a firm in Athens that was bought out by a much, much larger company, and apparently that's it. That's been the mo of this company is to snatch up smaller, you know, firms around the area, and uh, you know, talking to some of the workers there, and these were fairly well compensated, you know, these were white collar professional jobs. Um, but the, the transition and the buyout resulted in worse working conditions, less input on the job, uh, less clarity in terms of their, their policies and procedures, uh, confusion. It almost certainly is going to lead to layoffs if it hasn't already, uh, because of redundancies and looking at the organization chart. So this is something that workers experience a lot. Yeah. Uh, I know the, uh, the brothers and sisters you've been talking to down at the paper mill. Mm. Yeah. Multiple owners of the paper mill. And then, you know, every time you get, you get new ownership, that's a whole new set of problems, potentially. Um, usually it is a new set of problems. Um, you know, and that's something that workers have to deal with. No one ever asks us. Mm-hmm. When a company is, is going bankrupt or a, a company is going up for sale, no one ever asks the workers what they think about it. Right. No one ever asks the workers what the future should be for the firm. Yeah. Um, and that's why I think I policies such as the right of first refusal, where the workers in a business would have the first right to purchase the business, 
uh, before it is sold to another capitalist or a collection of hedge funds or, or what have you. I think that's a very important uh, policy that we should all be, be seeking to expand and implement here all over the United States uh, because it's, it's a shame, as you mentioned, that you know, just one rich guy can come in and take over a company and fuck up people's lives just because he, he can and he wishes to. And, you know, I think this really demonstrates a, a, a bigger issue as well, that we are led to believe that these folks like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, uh, that these are brilliant entrepreneurs, they're geniuses, they are, you know, you'll often hear people base, compare them favorably towards like politicians and, and government officials that, oh, you know, if only we ran things more like a business. Mm. Right, if only we had people like Jeff Bezos mm. and Elon Musk and these really smart guys. I mean, so much so it's so ingrained in work even working class people. Right. I have had many working class people tell me, Well, he must be smart, he wouldn't be that rich. Mm. I've heard that about Trump, I've heard that about Musk, I've heard that about Bezos. Well, he must be he must be brilliant. Otherwise, you know, he wouldn't be a billionaire, right? Right. Uh and, and I think this is good evidence <laughs> um, that the oligarchy is not sending their best folks. Yeah. They're not sending the best and brightest. Uh, and, and just because you have risen, or in most cases, been born into a position of tremendous wealth and power, uh, does not equate with intelligence, does not equate with rationality, does not equate with efficiency. Um, and so those ideas which swirl around in our society and our culture and permeates it's bullshit yeah it's bullshit and I, I and if anything comes out of this whole twitter fiasco i hope that some folks do think about it and, and I, I i suspect that elon's popularity has really tanked in in recent months because he has been showing his ass and he has mm -hmm. been kind of um alienating even more people than he had previously but I really hope that, at least for some folks, it it sheds light on this mystification around these billionaires and these entrepreneur figures. They're elite because of the wealth and power they have, not because of their intelligence, not because of their ability, not even because of their ability to run a business well. Right. That's not required. <clears throat> That's not required. Um, and in our economy especially given the amount of monopoly power that is present throughout our economy. You don't have to be a brilliant businessman to make a lot of money. You just have to have the wealth and power already. You have to have the right spot in the hierarchy. Yeah. And so we'll see. We'll see what comes out of this Twitter fiasco, but uh, I certainly hope that it is a wake-up call for some folks and uh, makes it harder and harder for the media and uh, these capitalist lackeys to push this out into our consciousness. That's going to be it for us today, folks. Uh, we'll remind you during the show on uh, next week, but don't forget we have the Labor Council Barbecue on Saturday, one week from today. We'll be heading there straight after the show. Food's going to be served at one. It's going to be real, actual, good barbecue. I'm not, we're, not you, we're not even talking about getting you stuff from like a good barbecue joint, like Gibson's or Lawler's or something. I'm talking, we're going to be having union members 
smoking stuff for like 12 hours. Like real good briskets and uh, barbecue. We'll have vegetarian options. Uh, RSVP, please. Please RSVP if you can. Um, I would, we'd really appreciate it so we know how much meat to buy, um, how much stuff to get. You can do that at tinyurl.com slash hsvunionbbq. tinyurl.com slash, that's a forward slash, uh, hsvunionbbq. Okay. Yeah, and check out the North Alabama Labor Council Facebook page. If, yeah, it's if, posted there. If you're on the road uh, or whatever, you can't type that URL in. Mm-hmm. Just look up North Alabama Labor Council. I really encourage folks to show up. It's going to be fun, and the food is going to be good. It's it, David is the one that's, I don't know, you know, I think a lot of folks around here know David is good at cooking, good at smoking. And I've heard uh, I've heard my Odyssey brother, uh, Al, is going to be cooking as well, and mm. I've heard uh, very good reviews about his uh, cooking, so... Yeah, it's going to be good. Um, and if you're not a union member, this is all paid for by the Labor Council, so there's no admission fee. We just want... We want union members to come out, uh, socialize, fraternize, uh, fellowship, all that good stuff. But we also want non-members to come out... That's right. ...and talk to us about our experiences in our unions, talk to us about how they can form a union in their workplace or maybe non-members in our own workplace. This is, we're going to give you a, a, you know, a get out of jail free card and we're not going to harass you about being a freeloader and we'll explain to you why you should be a member. That's um, right. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be fun. Uh, we might, might have some games, I think. Um, you know, uh, and so, if you're so a progressive activist who yeah. is not, um, you're not really in the labor realm so much, but you are involved in, you know, progressive politics or community organizing. This is a great opportunity to network uh, and to, you know, build relationships with folks who are in unions and vice versa. Um, I think it would be beneficial for the union folks there if you show up and, and, and talk to them. So, yeah. you know, I, I want to put that out there to anyone listening. Um, really, really encourage folks to to take advantage of that and um i had a couple or i I had another plug as well if if you didn't um monday evening at 5 30 the huntsville police citizens advisory council the hpcac is going to explore policies and facts surrounding use of force during a public forum at the richard shower center that's in north huntsville on blue spring road so um we have talked quite a bit on this show about the criminal injustice system in Huntsville. And we've talked a good bit on this show about the police violence in Huntsville to include a murderer cop and to include riot police who rioted against peaceful demonstrators two years ago. So we've talked a lot about that. Uh, I wanted to put that on people's radar, especially those of you who are more local. Monday night, that's this Monday night on the 14th, there will be an advisory council meeting regarding police use of force. Um, I know that United Women of Color and the uh, Citizens Coalition for uh, Criminal Justice Reform, they have put out a call uh, encouraging people to come and participate and, and be informed 
So if you are at all available and interested, definitely want to put that opportunity out there. All right, folks, that's going to be it for us today. We will see you next week, and all power to the world.